0: Welcome to Missionary Mindset. This is the podcast where we do a deep dive on all things missionings in East Asia. This week we'll be talking to David Rowe. David is currently serving as a director for OMS in East Asia. Today we'll be discussing a seminar on the next missionary movement of God. Hi David, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us about your ministry background?
1: Okay, sure. My, my name is David Rowe. Um, so I've been a missionary in Asia, sent from actually the U.S. Uh, from the Boston area, and uh, we served in China for about nine years, um, primarily in Beijing for most of those times. And then I came back to the U.S. Uh, and became the the director for the World Christie Wilson Center for World Missions at Gordon Conwell. I did that for a few years, and uh, also was teaching there um, missions. And then 2016, we moved back to East Asia. And so we've been in uh, Taiwan since then for the last five years. But my job uh, primarily is not just in Taiwan, it's more of a regional role for East Asia. Uh, so it started off actually with our time in China, we worked in Beijing primarily with the house church there. And so we were able to see a a church movement, you know, starting actually with young people, college students near Beita, Tsinghua, a lot of the uh, university districts in Haiti and in, in Beijing, and then worked with a lot of the churches there. And then through those church relationships, uh, began to um, coordinate a several of the, the house church pastors, several hundred of them actually, to uh, join together to attend a Lausanne Third World Congress in Cape Town, 2010. And so uh, they were not able to join because, in the end, of course, the government stopped it. But what happened was uh, it laid the tracks for a mission movement for church pastors to work together. So even though they weren't able to attend, they started a mission movement called Mission China, 2030, in 2015. So their their vision is to send out 20,000 missionaries from China to the to the rest of the world, primarily, hopefully, to the Muslim world, but um, going west, you know, back to Jerusalem that direction. Um, so it's a it's a combination of a multiple hun- several hundred churches are involved with this, and so that's my role has been trying to just uh, connect the churches in China as they are having this mission vision to send out missionaries. And so um, what I'm also doing is the I'm the Lausanne Regional Director for East Asia, and so that which includes China, but Korea, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Mongolia, Japan. But this, this region, I'm trying to connect these churches so that it would not just be a China movement, but it would be connected to other Asian countries in their mission movement. So including Taiwan, I'm hoping to see how the Taiwanese church can also be involved in mission sending. They've been doing it for a while, but they've plateaued and there's not much momentum in Taiwan and overseas Chinese churches, but the momentum is definitely in China. And so hopefully uh, there could be sort of a synergy or, infectuation of what's God doing within China to the rest of Asia, and so we are planning a Asia 2021 Congress, uh, and that's taking place. Actually, uh, we're we're planning a, a four planning evening sessions in October, um, and then we're going to have hopefully a face-to-face gathering next year where I'm bringing um, several hundred Asian leaders. Now, it's, it's, it's not just East Asia; Lausanne, we have. East Asia, Southeast Asia, with, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, that region. Um, And then we also have South Asia, which is, you know, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, um, Nepal, those those countries, Bangladesh. So between Asia, we have these three regions of about one point, no, maybe it's two point, anyways, I forget the exact numbers. So that's what I do. My, my role is to bring now these these Asian churches together for uh, uh, to bring leaders, pastors, mission leaders, theologians, and even marketplace folks together to help the Asian church catalyze their own mission movement, try to think how they can reach Asia and beyond. So that's been my role for the last
0: three wow. years. Wow, that sounds like a really important and also semi-stressful at times role, especially as of late.
1: Yeah, it's a, uh, well, it, it's, it's, complicated in that uh, every church is very different. Um, every country is different. And even within each country, you have so many different personalities, so many different uh, denominations, uh, you have uh, just different uh, positions, and uh, not just theological persuasion, but, you know, just uh, different opinions. And so how, how to bring everyone together is, is is not an easy task. But somehow, we've been able to see some success in it. And in that uh, there's some key, what we consider like, there's, they 're just more humble leaders who are realizing that their ministry is not the only ministry and so that they were they're willing to work with other leaders kind of a uh, kind of a mindset so there's a humility and unity kind of a, a person that we're looking for in leadership and then and then together uh, and I think it's exemplified with John Stott and Billy Graham when they started the first list on Congress in 1974 and even though Billy Graham was well known around the world but it required the whole global church coming together, and there's a sense of that kind of spiritual leadership that we're looking for.
0: Most people, I feel like don't, if they're not studied or not haven't grown up as a Christian, definitely don't ever hear about John Stock. All they hear is Billy Graham. <laughs> yeah, I think it but definitely- John Stock takes... is
1: actually more well-known. Of course, he's from England or from the UK, yeah. You know, and uh, he's more actually respected in certain circles as a as a scholar, yet also a pastor, a very humble in spirit, and then he the Lausanne movement, even though it was started by Billy Graham, it really was shaped by John Stott, because Billy Graham wanted uh, the Lausanne movement to be more of a evangelism kind of a, a movement, just to you know spread the gospel yeah. around the world. Uh, John Stott uh, used the word evangelization, which is is broader than just saving souls. We want want to you know have c- concern for the poor you know, concerned for social justice issues and so on. So bringing, uh, he actually learned that from the Latin American evangelicals, a lot of uh, social, you know, it's called holism, where uh, social justice issues, uh, feeding the poor and so on. And the evangelical church in 1970s had pretty much lost that vision. They were just focused on saving souls, to forget, you know, let the let the world go, the waste, that's fine, but we want to just, you know. and so what John yeah. Stott did, he brought that in. And, and balance the evangelical church. Um, so he actually had a, a in some sense, a, a, more of a shaping role of liaison after, after Billy Graham started it.
0: Because your ministry is so broad, obviously there's so, there could be so much stress, especially with COVID involved in your ministry. Um, what's been the most challenging part of your ministry as of, it can either be initially or as of late.
1: Well, um, it's, I, I see my ministry as primarily identifying and bringing, um, key spiritual leaders of the church together and and when i start to engage with leaders every god has given each leader certain charisma certain giftings certain you know spiritual gifts and which are very strong in certain areas but um, they might be blind in other areas or weak in other areas trying to bring you know really strong gifted leaders together to work together it's like herding cats you know everyone <laughs> Feels like they 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 know how it is, and and actually yep. sometimes the more successful, uh, the harder to work together is because they there's a sense of well the reason why I'm so successful is because I'm right you know uh, that kind of a mindset. <laughs> so and there that that's how God works. In some sense, God does gift certain people with these kind of gifts, but then interestingly, it's it's like. Uh, not everyone has those kind of gifts. And so trying to bring them together. And then also each country has their own, you know, own personalities and, and the country leaders uh, and, and Taiwan, just to give an example with Taiwan. Taiwan's got its own issues being in an island, of course, next to China. And an island mindset is different from a mainland China mindset, you know. Yeah. It's almost kind of like Puerto Rico versus the rest of the, you know, it's sort of you have an island mindset versus the, the mainland or even, you know, there's different mindsets. And when you have an island mindset, often you're thinking primarily about your island and so on. So th- those are just different cultural and political um, entities that are affecting the church inside each country.
0: Okay. Yeah, that, that would definitely be difficult at times, I think. So let's get into your seminar. So the title of your seminar was Korea and Urban China Catalyzing an Asian Indigenous Missions Movement. Kind of for the listeners, can you kind of delve into that a little bit further and just kind of explain what that means?
1: So uh, in the 1990s, the Korean church began to send out missionaries. Actually, they sent out missionaries earlier, but their movement started to take off after 1988, uh, the Seoul Olympics and so on. So the church was catalyzed to send thousands of missionaries, they reached 10,000 missionaries by the year 2000 within 10 years from under a thousand to 10,000 in 10 years. Wow. And then for the next 10 years, they, they reached another 20,000 after that. So they get about 22,000 or so, 23,000 missionaries sent from Korea. And that's all t- taking place all within the last 30 years or so. And that's why you have Korean missionaries in pretty much virtually every country in the world.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, impressive. Because, um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, so Korea actually then sent missionaries into China, and then China, of course, has had a church for a couple, you know, more over 200 years with, you know, um, Hudson Taylor, Robert Morrison, in the earlier days. So there, there's always been an indigenous church in China, but then the urban church took place after Tiananmen Square, in 1989, when intellectuals came to Christ, and it was a combination of Korean missionaries coming into the universities, as and, and reaching Korean Chinese. College students, which actually, which like I said, college ministry is very strategic. In fact, probably, well, I'd say most strategic, but one of the <laughs> most. And then the American missionaries, American English teachers, came in like through Campus Crusade, ELIc, and so on, to the campuses, and like yourself, started to you know teach English and spread the gospel. So the urban church started to take off in the nineteen nineties and in, in, in two thousand. So the urban church grew really quickly, and then the urban church connected through you know Lazon with with the rural church and the other churches already existing in China uh, started a mission uh, movement going forward so you know looking at the different you know ways in church history you know God started you know you know, of course through them through Jerusalem going north into Europe you know from Europe to North America Europe and North America sent missionaries to the rest of the world including Asia Africa and Latin America then from Asia it reached Korea China, Of course, all across Asia and so on, but Korea and China now are catalyzing. Now it's no longer, we're just thinking how to reach our own country. We're thinking about how to send our missionaries to the rest of the world. Not all countries have reached that stage yet, but at least Korea has done it and China is at the cusp of a a movement. So they already sent out, mainly China has already sent out 2000 missionaries. So that momentum my sense is how god's operating will then be infectious and hopefully catalyze the other asian countries that are still not at that stage yet you know i would even put taiwan in that category taiwan you know other countries even india india has catalyzed its own mission movement into uh, unreached people groups within their own country but they haven't thought of outside of their country yet and so hopefully uh, a lot of these uh, countries can start to then catalyze their own mission movements, sending them to unreached areas of the world.
0: I did not know that China had actually sent missionaries out, which is really interesting because um, as we all know, China doesn't doesn't really like any religion um, at this point in time. Were there any surprising trends, numbers of missionaries from countries in that area that you were kind of surprised by?
1: Um, we talk about Chinese missionaries being sent, or yeah.
0: yeah, so so not just Chinese missionaries, but I when I was looking through the PowerPoint, the graphs that you had, you had set up, I saw a block from you know, obviously from Korea from 1999 to 2005 that was kind of missing. I saw there was a change from Singapore where they it looked like they'd been sending missionaries at pretty steady incline, and then all of a sudden there was a drop off. I didn't know, just more my ignorance.
1: Sure. <laughs> Yeah, so this is what, of course, through my, I'm doing a, a research on this, but my my general sense is this, when the country is transitioning from being a developing country to a developed country, uh, especially Korea in the 1980s or even China today, it's it's still moving toward that direction. There's a lot of transition going on in the country and Christianity actually thrives and grows under those contexts. But once a country becomes developed like the West in Europe or even North America, And I would say Singapore is at that stage, you know, uh, and so on. And even that's why we all see the Korean church in some sense plateauing now. It's because once it becomes, when you have materialism, secularization, uh, you know, you have all the the temptations of this world, it's going to be far harder to give that up to go for the sake of the gospel. And I think what happened with Singapore was it's reached a certain stage of development where the churches have a hard time just maintaining uh people to come and be interested in spiritual fact things and so on but also um there's just that uh, something about suffering that the Chinese church has gone through and even the Korean church uh during the Korean war and so on what suffering does is turns people to God there's sort of a uh, in English he's made it more of a uh just a, a, a a love for experiential love for God during a time of suffering, and, um, yeah. and that has been been nurtured in the house church in China because they had such a hard time from persecution and so on. So, so they turn to God, and so their relationship with God is really deep and really close. There's a pietistic you know experience with that, and so I think it's harder to gain that in even Taiwan and overseas Chinese communities of, of developed countries and so on. So that's that's just my general assessment uh-huh. that, uh, but I think though, if the Chinese church can catalyze this and then infectuate Singapore and other churches, it can it can re, you know, it's Singapore started to go up and started to go down, but hopefully like, like same with Taiwan, Taiwan, Hong Kong all have about 600 missionaries. Singapore had about 700. This was 10 years ago, and they've just all plateaued. They're all kind of in the plateauing or even declining stage. But then, if China comes in and just and shows this is, we're willing to go to the ends of the earth, even when our pastor's in prison. You know, sort of that kind of mindset. I think it it can really be an effectuation that that could impact the overseas Chinese churches outside of China.
0: Yeah, I definitely think I, I agree with your assessment. I definitely think anytime you have a, a person who has gone through so much hardship, like um, a lot of the underground church has, and they're still willing to go even further, mm-hmm. anytime you see that, it pushes you kind of further. You're like, oh, well, I should be willing to go. Then I've, mm-hmm. I haven't i have gone through anything really difficult. <laughs>
1: Um, right, you know, a, a Beijing Zion Church, one of the largest house churches in Beijing, uh, about fifteen, eight to eighteen hundred people. Uh, they were attacked in two thousand eighteen and got completely dismantled by the government. But the year that they got attacked, they set up ten missionary units. You know, um, so it's it's interesting. Of course, they they have about close to twenty units overseas right now. But uh, here's just an example of while churches are being under attack they're not just thinking of maintaining what their own structures are. They're thinking we we want to send missionaries to the rest of the world. That's inspirational.
0: Yeah, it really is. Like
1: it gives no ex- excuse to the rest of the churches in, <laughs> in freer countries. Right
0: <laughs> that is exactly right. Especially, I mean, being from North America, you know, from the U S seeing the slow and kind of methodical pull away from the church like so many people are uh, the cultural pull away from the church and seeing less and less missionaries or less and less people being willing to go um, i think we we're starting to see that in a lot of places like you said like singapore places that get away from a developmental stage to just materialistic stage and so i i definitely can see that trend being being pretty prominent throughout just not even just now but throughout history <laughs> So one of my uh, big questions is, can you explain kind of what Mission China 2030 is? I know you kind of explained it in your open, but also the goals of Mission China, not just the goals for that year, but what are kind of the long-term goals that you want to see with Mission China?
1: Well, Mission China is actually a group of, I would say about eight key leaders, primarily urban, but some rural and traditional leaders coming together. And then they have a network of, I would say, up to about 800 to a thousand churches that they're connected with all across China. So, uh, it's a, it's a broad network, but what their general, it's not just about sending out 20,000 missionaries. In fact, that, that number itself is very controversial. Like I said, whenever you, you know, you have people, a lot of people are agreeing with mission China, but they don't agree with the mission China 2030 vision and goal. They say, well, you know, 20,000 missionaries is some people are saying unrealistic, other people saying, "It's not the number; it's the quality. It's more important, you know." And so, I think this is true uh, in, in that sense as well. But they, what they, the the main thrust of what they're trying to do though is, they want to send, uh, they want to reach to unreached people groups or uh, minority groups within China. And they recognize that the, the West and Korea have been doing well, especially the, the American missionaries and unreached people groups in most every, you know, in, in the past has been through American missionaries, but they want to they put their their time into that. They also want to reach a Chinese diaspora, especially in Africa and through other areas of the world where they know Chinese are all around the world. But the, the most important strategic is actually cross-cultural overseas, which is something that, uh, has not really been promoted in overseas Chinese circles. Most overseas Chinese mission churches, in fact, if you look at most of Taiwan churches that you work with, if you count how many missionaries are actually being sent from the church, probably nine out of 10 are doing some kind of overseas Chinese work somewhere else. Then they're not doing cross-cultural overseas. So one main difference for this group is they wanna make that a key emphasis. And so that they can send people not just overseas but cross-culturally and primarily hopefully heading west is because that's where they feel their their specialty is because they're located in a place next to Central Asia and, and to the Muslim world. And since President Xi Jinping is already trying to push the One Belt Initiative policy all across China heading west, they want to see themselves uh, also having a spiritual impact in those regions. So that's sort of a, a, a primary thrust. It comes also from the back to Jerusalem movement uh, in influence. Of course, that is also very controversial as well. Uh, I would say half the church are supportive, half are against. The general thrust is heading toward that direction to the Muslim world.
0: That makes sense. I know the West, Western Church, you know, America, Europe, as of late has pushed for a while. For a long time, it was everybody go to China, everybody go to. Asia, and then for a very short period, it seemed like they were pushing towards the Middle East. But as of late, at least in my estimation, it seems like they're getting further away from the Middle East. Would you say that's correct? What is your?
1: Are you talking about the the North American Church, the Western Church missionary? Yes, sir.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I I would say this. Uh, 1974 was uh, you know the first Lausanne Congress when when Ralph Winters talked about a new term called unreached people groups. That was the main thrust for the last 50, 60 years of the mission world, going to you know, people groups, language cultures, You know, about 16,000 of them, 8,000 that are reached, 8,000 not that reached. That's sort of the perspectives movement, primary thrust of for the last 60 years of the evangelical church. But then in ni- 1989 was the second Lausanne Congress and then Luis Bush was the director then. And he mentioned the 1040 window at that time. A more of a regional area rather than people groups. And in the 1040 window in 1989 included China. That's why we had lots of people go yeah. to China, included you know India, but included unreached people groups, but it included the Muslim world. And so all of a sudden after 1989, the Muslim world sort of almost got highlighted uh, along with unre- unreached people groups. And, and you know you have pioneers, frontiers, um, you know, a lot of mission agencies primarily focus in those areas, although, you know, there's there's many other mission a- agencies in there, OM and YWAM and so on, also a lot of work there. So I would say the the two primary thrusts have been Unreached People Groups and the Muslim world and China in this 1040 window. Okay. But, but then, the, the, like I said, since, since then, there's the new thrust has been uh, now these churches in the in the global south you know in asia africa latin america they have risen up and so now these 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 churches are becoming part of the uh, the mission sending movements so the which is great we see brazil actually sending fifteen thousand missionaries you see africa now also wanting to send missionaries heading north into northern africa we have um of course asia with china and with korea and 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 uh, India going out, but the uh, the challenges now, North America, the, the mindset has now been, well, since they're doing all the good work, we can just sit back and say, and, and support them financially and pray for them, and let them do the work, since they're the ones doing the better job. That's sort of the mentality, but when you have that mentality, you actually lose out in the end, because, you know, God is at work, of course, in every different region, but there's something about being part of that process when you when you live yourself and you die for the sake of the gospel or you go into areas that are, that are in greater need for sake gospel, there's a spiritual blessing that comes out of that, you know? And so the North American churches will start to lose some of that blessing because they're just gonna see it from the sideline, you know? Chinese pastors have told me, you know, they respect American missionaries like yourself. They give your, you know, you left Texas or whatever. You left, you know, an area to come. There is something about that that reflects the gospel message, right? That's exactly what Jesus did there. So if you don't even have that as a model to show to the next generation, you know, how can you consider that even gospel centered or even part of the gospel? It's more a story that you can share, but it's not reflected in people in your church. Of course, not everyone's called to go, but if you have no one going, then it actually is a defective gospel.
0: Yeah. Then it might be, there might be an issue there.
1: I, I think it
0: re- reflects a it for, it
1: reflects a church uh, that really has the gospel at the core of its theology because it's actually practicing it um, not just by preaching it but actually living it out you know and so that's you know
0: yeah I think the churches the underground church the the churches in India Taiwan East Asia just Asia in general are finally starting to get to the level where they feel do you think they're getting to the level where they feel comfortable sending missionaries out or are they going to continue trying to grow within instead of like um because i know a lot of churches in taiwan they that i work with they send missionaries to other people in taiwan so it kind of harkens back to your to your island mentality do you think that in the future with the chinese church sending missionaries to taiwan to to the east, to the west, to Muslim countries. Do you think that will kind of catalyze a shift in thought? To oh, well, maybe we should send missionaries other places than just our home country.
1: Yeah, no. First, it's, it has to start with the pastors, you know, and it has to start with the, the spiritual leaders of the church. There always will be outliers. All you know, young people who give up their you know life for the gospel and and go but as as long as the church leadership in a country doesn't see it yet it'll take some time and i think the definitely the mainland chinese church has already caught that the the the, the mission movement is actually led by pastors and it's led by the top pastors it, it the equivalent would be if like north america if tim keller Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, and just, just uh, you know, all the top John Piper and whatever—all the top spiritual pastors of North America got together and said, "We want to have a goal for American churches to send out missionaries by the year." Whatever, that's the kind of um, momentum that's taking place in China. In other wow. countries, you know, um, like Taiwan right now, they're they were fighting, you know, the 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 gay marriage. Law. They were. They they have other issues they're concerned about right now, and they're primarily uh, into growing and reaching Taiwan, which is actually a different state. You, know, you need that stage first in order for a church to be in some sense healthy, outreaching. You know, missional in your own context. Because if you're not even doing that, you know, how can you do that overseas? So, yeah. so they're in that still development stages. Um, but then once these pastors, you know, that's why I say this Asia 2021 is very important. You, you got to bring the key pastors together to engage with other pastors of other regions and let them see, oh, wow, if this is what Chinese, you know, if, if, if these pastors are doing this and they're under house arrest, how can, you know, what am I doing? You know, so, so hopefully they, they, they're not just in this own island mentality. They're looking and then be getting inspiration for how God's using other churches and other regions of the world.
0: When I was reading through your seminar, one of the PowerPoints had sacrificial missions from a persecuted context.
1: Okay, so yeah, the um, the, the Back to Jerusalem um, ban, which took place actually in 1940s, this is actually before communism came in uh, and took over China. There was about 56 or 50 or so young people from Eastern part of China, from Shandong and from Shanxi province, and they gave up their lives to head west they gave it was sort of a sacrificial martyrdom spirit of for the sake of the gospel. God gave him a vision to go to back to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem, and so they they didn't they they didn't have much. They just pretty much gave it all up and headed in that direction, and so in the end they landed in Xinjiang. Seven of them were martyred, arrested, and put in prison, died in prison, and the the movement started a few churches, but then eventually died because communist party came in and just wiped them out. And we can maybe from a mission strategy point of view say it was a failure. But what happened was uh, one, uh, several of these folks survived, including someone called Simon Zhao, Zhao, Zhao Ximen. He He was 31 years in prison. Uh, and when he came out, he started to share this back to Jerusalem vision to cool. these younger generation folks. And wow. so, they were they caught this because they saw a light. They saw someone who, who's you know who had this vision, gave it up. And even though it he didn't accomplish it, but he gave he had a sacrificial martyrdom kind of a, a spirit, and so that catalyzed the next generation to go. And so that's sort of it's in their DNA. And of course, you know the house church, they're already uh, in some in a persecuted context. So in some sense, whenever they see persecution and suffering, it almost is God's. God telling them this is sort of the, you know, the right thing, or or this is this is the, this is the essence of the gospel. Suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel, for the furtherance of the gospel, for the expansion of the gospel is the gospel message in itself. So that's sort of the the DNA of the the sacrificial martyrdom spirit of the uh, house church in China, and then it infectuates to the next generation. And when they look at the North American missionary movement, they they say they've told me, we see that in North America, especially a hundred years ago when Hudson Taylor came and so on, they sacrificially gave themselves during a very difficult time coming to China and laid the the seeds of the gospel into China. And so that is the that is the spirit that is needed for a missionary movement. Without that, uh, it's very it's it's virtually impossible for people to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. You, get, you, you have to have that sacrificial, in some sense, martyrdom spirit for the sake of gospel, I'm willing to go and die for the sake of the gospel. That, that is actually the spiritual essence, what they call it, the, the, the core strength of a missionary movement.
0: Has the kind of the unrest and the current leadership in China based on everything that we've read, that, that they really have tried to stamp out a lot of the underground churches. Has that affected the church's ability to send missionaries in a large way? And are there ways that, that you've seen that they're able to kind of solve that issue?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, it has dampered. And actually, uh, they you can say there was a lot of momentum in, in 2015 when they, for four years straight, they had conferences, large conferences, one in Hong Kong, one in Jeju, Korea, one in Chiang Mai, one in Singapore, uh, because they had a little more freedom then. And then 2018 is when President Xi came up with these new laws. And, and so they've had to pretty much close a lot of things as a result. And because a lot of the churches came under attack too as well. So it it definitely slowed down their excitement and momentum. Uh, so they have to think uh, creatively how to move forward. But interestingly, um, at the same time, 2020 is, is the COVID-19. And as a result of COVID, the government opened up Zoom for people to use Zoom. And so through Zoom, they have been able to then move into more of a, a mission prayer mobilization. So they've mobilized, you know, at times, I remember a conference on martyrdom, okay, they, they took all the Western missionaries who were martyred in in China, and they gave, they showed their pictures, what they were doing, where they were martyred, all this in Chinese and had a, uh, you know, 30 second to a minute silence for the, and these are missionaries who were martyred hundred years ago during the Boxer of oh, wow. It's only in history books, right? Yeah. 5,000 people were part of that, you know? Wow. So it's, it's kind of like uh, uh, what, this would have never taken place you know, if if Zoom and and COVID hadn't been, you know, so there's that, and then they I know of at least two 24 hour seven days a week prayer chains that are going on for missions of several hundred people. I speak at one of them. Actually, I spoke at both of them, but these are separate groups that are praying and and uh, for missions and for they have a a chain like I said of uh, everyone. There's a, a there's a church that takes an hour slot throughout the weekend. And this chain started uh, during COVID, so it's already been going over for a year and a half now and continues. Wow! And, and their, their motto is a hundred year prayer for a hundred year mission. So they, I don't know, it might awesome. be like the Moravians, hundred years of prayer, but at least they have that desire to keep that momentum going.
0: I know based on, I guess, China politics, but there's the sense that that China eventually will close their borders to a lot of outside influences, outsiders in general. What will mission China look like within that, if that does happen?
1: Yeah. So mission China, uh, the, what happens within China doesn't necessarily need foreigners right now. They, the churches are all mobilizing within. What they need foreign help is actually outside of China. Uh, how? How? Because they they're very at the beginning stages of actually doing missions outside of China. So that's where the mission world, you know, whether it's IMB or OMF or Pioneers or Wycliffe or WEC or whatever, SIM, who have a lot of, you know, the OMF, I'm with OMF, 150, 160 years of mission experience, right? So yeah. we have people all across the world in Southeast Asia, you know, pioneers as, you know, IMB. So these missionaries are all around the world. And so what this, these Chinese need is they need to know who's doing what. And what can we do? And, and instead of maybe doing our own thing there, let's come and learn from what's existing. So that's sort of what they need the most from the Western world or from the not just the Western, but the, the, the Korean missionaries as well. So I think that's uh, uh, they, they need that kind of partnership. And that's where Asia 2021, myself, uh, I'm kind of hopefully building this bridge so that these Chinese churches, when they send out missionaries, have connections with the existing mission movement.
0: That I think would be a huge help to so many people just within my own circle. I know a lot of people that have worked in Canada with, with Chinese diaspora and things like that. And and I know a lot of people who obviously are Western missionaries, you know, from the U S or from Canada, trying to get into that group at times can be a little difficult or a little daunting. And, and I think, Coming from an outsider perspective, it, it can be much easier if they had, you know, a contact, someone who they can just come alongside and work with without having to create something new out of thin air.
1: I mean, just imagine a Chinese plopping into a Muslim country, right? Not knowing any language, any culture, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing, right? And trying to share the gospel uh, and at least you have missionaries who have been there for, you know, 20 years or so that at least can provide some handholding during the initial stages. So that's, that, that'll be, and you just imagine that context in, in, in the unreached people groups, you know, you have so many unreached people groups in Southeast Asia, same thing, you know, yeah. that's where China will need their help.
0: How can future missionaries within the the mission, China, how will they fit into that goal I know the goal you said initially was was 20,000 people. How will the the future 20,000 people, how will they fit into that goal? Not just as a number, but as kind of an outbranch to go to Muslim countries or unreached people groups. And and what kind of will that look like? So
1: from historical, uh, looking at how the Korean mission movement took place, uh, 90% of the Korean missionaries uh, went out through their own Korean uh, churches or Korean denominations. Uh, They didn't have to learn English, they just went and and did missions on and they made a lot of mistakes, just like the Westerners have. But they've they've done some very good work. Uh, There's about 10% of them that did join international agencies that could speak English because in order to join an international agency, you need to speak English. Yeah. Um, but there's a different challenge when you join an international agency is that you have to learn the, not just the local culture of another language and culture, you got to learn the global culture, how to work with
0: America, everybody,
1: and, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and so there's a there's an extra added stress for that. However, what we've noticed for the Korean churches, a lot of the key Korean leaders have been in international agency settings because international agencies in some sense. Uh, teach you um, a certain kind of how to work with a global church more diverse there's a little more of a you have to have a uh, in some sense really godly character to work with different (laughs) kinds of people you know very humble you got to have a humble spirit (laughs) so i I think the same with china Uh, you're going to have the majority of missionaries still being very indigenously chinese they won't learn the language of english they won't learn the global culture though from chinese they'll learn uyghur or they'll learn um Um, you know, some um, indigenous language where where they're going to go through, and they'll do um, good work there. But you'll have, especially from the urban centers like Beijing, Shanghai, and some of the more uh, college ministries that, you know, that uh, who speak English, these are the churches that would probably want to send their young people to join international agencies. Uh, and, and a lot of uh, what, what the people that I'm working with, especially in Beijing, they a lot of them sent their um, college to, uh, seminary graduates to North America to start to study at North American seminaries. There's, they're in pretty much about 20 different seminaries all across North America. You know, whether, just name it, you know, whether at Trinity yeah. or, you know, Wheaton or gordon Combo or, or Fuller or Dallas or Westminster region. You just mentioned it. Biola. They're there They're there at Moody. And so when they graduate, Many of them come back into China, they're at a different level. They they understand China, the Chinese, they also have the globalized culture. They have, you know, so they can be joining into international agencies, and they will be the bridge between the indigenous and the global. And I think you need both. You need, in some sense, a combination of both indigenous and international in order for a more healthier movement.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think having both has way more pros than cons, obviously, just by the sheer fact that they have different, you know, when it's global, all the cultures are trying to figure out each other, figure out where mm-hmm. everybody's coming from. Like you said, it takes a really humble spirit to to work with all the different cultures at times. But if you have somebody who, who understands that culture, but also understands the global culture, the transition much easier, I think for, for future missionaries from China going globally.
1: Yeah, and these people don't have—they don't have to be a lot of them. Of course, you know, it's not like everyone has to be, you know, global and indigenous. But you need a few of them to make those connections, right? Or to make the—they're bridge builders, and they're ones who can kind of point to the blind spots of the local as well. Because indigenous missionaries, you know, just from whether it's from Korea, or China, or even North America, if you only, you know, you you only see the world according to one perspective, right? And so you sometimes need someone who's been exposed to multiple cultures and language and so on and perspectives to kind of point to some of our own blind spots and so that's i think going to so be true. helpful well I, if i think if i were to approach especially the missionaries in taiwan because i think you know tmf serves pretty much the mission the mission agencies in taiwan and i i know that uh, including my mission agency omf targeting uh, more the working class and there's many areas uh, that the taiwan church is still you know, not really. I guess say they're they're weaker in, and so they will need foreign missionaries to to help them in this area. Uh, but I would always, at the same time, say missionaries: we have a, a still a role to reach pioneering situations in a country that has been already has maybe even a strong or a healthy church, but there are areas where that church still needs to. Uh, begin work in and so that's where foreign missionaries need to be involved in at more of those areas but in doing so it would be best to connect and partner with existing national churches rather than do it on ourselves so that's just my general observation um, that often foreign missionaries actually they try to do things sort of on their on their own without the national church that would be my one 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 observation that I would recommend. Another observation is this, and I know that most, even with OMF, we kind of said college ministry, uh, we, we give that to the locals now, you know, because there's already, you know, <laughs> know there's already CCEF, yeah. there's already CCC, there's so many uh, indigenous college students and so on. But I would almost say this, that college ministry and young people always need a fresh face. And in some sense, it's easier for a foreigner to reach young people than an indigenous church to reach young people. We saw that in Beijing, and you probably see that as well. If a Taiwan church person comes from the Taiwan from Grace Baptist from the Chinese side to try to reach their own people into the campuses, it may not That's be the good. best yeah. strategy because, you know, so I still say we need, you know, foreigners to target the university's young people.
0: Well, guys, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us as we learn about all things missions in East Asia. A big thank you to our guest, David Rowe, as well as Dale, our editor, and Nelson, our producer. This podcast is brought to you by Taiwan Missionary Fellowship. Till next time, bye.